What's up, everyone? Welcome to the latest episode of Note to Scene. This week, we got a deep dive on what exactly was the war against emo. You can listen to the official Note to Scene radio show over at 94.3 The X in Colorado every Saturday night from 8 to 10 p.m. local time. If you want to check it out, you're not in the area, you can download the station's app. Just search 94.3 The X in the App Store and tune in this Saturday. You can also join the official Note to Scene Facebook group to discuss the show, industry numbers, scene nostalgia, and more. If you have any comments, questions, or requests for deep dives, email me at notetoscene at gmail.com. All right, so it sounds kind of ridiculous now, and I bet even a lot of people listening right now either don't remember or don't even know that this happened, but mainstream media did wage a war against emo. Like most counterculture movements, they were fairly late to it. In 2008, the Daily Mail, which is basically the UK's equivalent to TMZ, ran an article with the title, Why No Child is Safe from the Sinister Cult of Emo. It was in response to the suicide of 13-year-old Hannah Bond. Coroner Roger Sykes had suggested at the time that she took her life due to her association with emo music and said that he found emo culture quote-unquote disturbing. The Daily Mail took this and stretched it a million miles wide. This was the lead from their article, but before I start, I just want to add a little content advisory warning to say there is definitely some graphic terminology here regarding self-harm and suicide. Here's what they wrote. Hannah was a happy 13-year-old girl until she became an emo, part of a sinister teenage craze that romanticizes death. Three months later, she hanged herself. Here, her devastated mother tells other parents, no child is safe. Daily Mail's original piece on Hannah's death had the headline, Girl, 13, Hangs Herself After Becoming Obsessed with Emo Suicide Cult Rock Band. The end of the article read, Emo, from the word emotional, is a reference to the angst-filled lyrics and melancholy themes of the rock music central to the culture. One of the foremost of these suicide cult bands is My Chemical Romance from New Jersey. Their first single, Welcome to the Black Parade, from the album The Black Parade, was released in 2006 and became a huge hit, going number one in Britain. The concept album follows the story of a character called The Patient who dies of cancer. The Black Parade is a nickname for the place where emo fans believe they will go when they die. Now, this was far from the first time a movement had been made against a form of rock or metal music, right? And it wasn't even the beginning of the war against emo, but it was definitely the moment that blew the top off of things. My Chemical Romance was arguably the biggest emo band in the world, at the forefront of the culture, and they had just released their magnum opus album, The Black Parade. Daily Mail's article made so many waves that MCR came out and released a statement addressing it and Hannah's death. Here's what they said. We have recently learned of the suicide and tragic loss of Hannah Bond. We'd like to send our condolences to her family during this time of mourning. Our hearts and thoughts are with them. My Chemical Romance are and always have been vocally anti-violence and anti-suicide. As a band, we have always made it one of our missions through our actions to provide comfort, support, and solace to our fans. The message and theme of our album, The Black Parade, is hope and courage. Our lyrics are about finding the strength to keep living through pain and hard times. The last song on our album states, I am not afraid to keep on living, a sentiment that embodies the band's position on hardships we all face as human beings. If you or anyone you know have feelings of depression or suicide, we urge you to find your way and your voice to deal with these feelings positively. 
So this came one week before a group of MCR fans protested outside of Daily Mail's office. They carried signs that read things like, I am not afraid to keep on living, and we are not a cult, we are an army, the MC army. The Daily Mail responded to all of this with a statement of their own, defending their article. Here's an excerpt of what they said. The Daily Mail's coverage of the emo movement has been balanced, restrained, and above all, in public interest. Genuine concerns were raised at the inquest earlier this month on 13-year-old emo follower Hannah Bond, who had been self-harming and then tragically killed herself. In common with other newspapers, we ran an accurate news story regarding the coroner's remarks and the parents' comments. We also published two other articles, one of which explained the background to the Hannah tragedy in calm and unsensational language. The other was a first-person opinion piece by a well-known writer written from the perspective of a mother concerned for her children. We have also run two prominent page lead letters from an emo music fan and from a fan of My Chemical Romance defending their point of view. Our music critic admires the music of the band and published the band's UK tour last year. Since this protest was announced, a great deal of misinformation has appeared on the internet, much of which confuses what the Daily Mail has actually published with the comments of website readers and blogs over which we have no control and which have stirred up emotions. We note it has been pointed out by others that all of this provides wonderful publicity for Warner and their impending release of My Chemical Romance's latest album. The Daily Mail is a broad church and is always ready to listen to the views of readers. We do, however, suggest those who want to protest or comment read everything we have published and act on fact, not rumor. First off, the Daily Mail's writing tone has always inherently slanted towards sensationalism. Even today, I can't believe some of the stuff that they actually publish. And as far as the articles they did write, even just in the last paragraph where they wrote that all emo fans believe they go to the Black Parade when they die, I mean, come on. But like I said, this wasn't the first moment in the movement against emo. Two years earlier, the Daily Mail had published a piece with the headline, Emo Cult Warning for Parents. Its main purpose was to correlate emo culture and suicide. And then there were the countless local news reports that aired on TV in the US alone. So many three to five minute segments ran on local TV outlets from roughly 2006 to 2008 that attempted to describe what emo was, but nearly all of them came off as fairly clueless on connecting the dots of what the movement actually was. Take a listen to a clip from a local Fox station in Los Angeles. And its music is big. Lalala Strogoff takes a closer look in this Fox 11 undercover report. The sound is intense. The look distinctive. Hair that covers one part of the eye. Feeling dark and angry. Anger, rage, heartache. These are emo scene kids, but if you're over 25, you've probably never heard of them. Scene kids. Definitely emo scene kids. They trace their roots from early punk rock to goth to emo, short for emotional hardcore. When emo started spreading on the internet, it just exploded. Scene kids now pack clubs across Southern California with scores of young bands. Seen the look. I look like a scene kid, I admit it. Girls wear huge buckles on their waist, double piercings in their lips. Snake bites. 
and band rags in their pockets. Boys wear their band shirts tight and pants even tighter. They wear girl pants. Yes, girl pants are a must. Can you bend over comfortably in them? <laughs> hair, straight or modified mohawks. Multicolored hair, the spike. And makeup from powder to eyeliner. A lot of eyeliner. All I gotta say is you can still be a manly man and wear makeup. Beyond the fashion is the music, giving voice to raw teen angst. When you scream, you're letting your emotions out, and it's just, kids can relate to it because everyone inside wants to scream out. The music is embraced by millions of kids struggling with deep, intensely personal emotional issues. Uh, my parents were, you know, deported, and I live here, like, with someone who's a really a relative of mine. And I get really depressed sometimes, but you know, I just put in the black parade and I'm like, I know there's something I relate to and something that makes me want to keep, keep on living. Emotional, but some take it to extremes, posting their angst across the internet. How everything is falling apart and like birds are dying. I mean, birds are dying and it's like, hard, you know, to like wake up every day. My life is spiraling downward. Scene kid culture has been savaged by lampoons like this one, which is all over the net. I'm an emo kid. And outside of this, there was a clash of the countercultures, and emo was a big target. Aside from goth for the most part, the punks and hardcore kids hated emo kids. So much so that the local news outlets even ran blurbs warning of planned attacks against emo kids. Listen to this one. State police are investigating a series of death threats against teenagers in the Gananda Central School District. Those threats are being posted in online chat rooms and targets a group of kids known as emos. That's a reference to students who listen to hardcore punk music, often wear black, and sometimes have emotional problems. The teenagers making the threats are known as the Emo Resistance Program. So far, the online threats have not turned into any physical violence, but school administrators and state police aren't taking any chances. I've mentioned on multiple episodes the way the scene was outcast from other counterculture movements, whether it was the traditional punk bands giving way to emo on Warped Tour in the late 90s and early 2000s, or the hardcore wave of the early 2010s having a zero-tolerance policy for scene kids. It's interesting because at the beginning of emo's rise to the mainstream, the punk bands went after the bands, not the fans. But when hardcore had its small moment in the early 2010s, it was full of masculinity issues and egos from fans compensating for how their favorite band was Pierce the Veil two years before that point. And if you were a scene kid and ended up at one of those shows, local or touring, you were a literal target. Don't ever think about wearing a Bless the Fall shirt to a Backtrack show. Even if you weren't in the pit, you were most likely going to get hit. But at this point, the scene and all of this was so far from the commercial relevancy of the mid-2000s that it wasn't even close to mainstream media's radar. And like I said before, like so many things, they were way late to emo. By the time those local news bits ran from 2006 to 2008, the movement was beginning its exit from the commercial eye. Sure, the scene lasted for another decade, give or take a few years, but it became a shell of what it once was in overall scope. And fast forward to today, you'll see emo certainly lost the war, but it wasn't for suicide cults. It was sexual misconduct. It was racism. Hell, it was even homophobia. Brian Cook, who used to be in Botch and These Arms Are Snakes, spoke just last year how he encountered homophobia from Under Oath while on tour in 2005. 
Under oath has since distanced themselves as far away as possible from religion, but the fact remains, the scene was just a hostile place back in the day. Ex-Newfound Glory guitarist Stephen Klein is a registered sex offender. Lost Prophets vocalist Ian Watkins is a convicted pedophile. Front Porch Step, members of No Good News set it off neck deep, and others, including Austin Carlyle, and that wasn't even his first time, were accused of some form of sexual misconduct in 2014 and 2015, all before the Me Too movement. And it felt like band member after band member was accused of sexual misconduct in the years that followed, from Brand News' Jesse Lacey to Pierce the Veil's Mike Fuentes, and even just earlier this month saves the day's Chris Conley. And if you want to take a look at racism in the scene, there are Jeffree Star videos for that. So although our world wasn't a massive suicide cult, it really wasn't the best environment. And it's been upsetting to see so much of this come to light over the last decade, and as we keep seeing, it just feels like it's never going to end. And a lot of the voices left in this world won't talk about what's been in this entire dive. You can't just address what you want. Any one thing is only the sum of its individual parts, and as much as we want to look back or forward on scene nostalgia, there's a massive dark side that you just can't ignore. And if you are, you're just not telling the whole story. And to circle back on the original war on emo, it's difficult. I mean, at the end of the day, the parents of Hannah Bond still lost their daughter when she was 13. Do I personally think music or any form of media or entertainment causes people to do bad things? No, I mean, this conversation has been around for decades now, from Grand Theft Auto video games to Metallica Slayer and Judas Priest songs, and of course Ozzy Osbourne. But as we just covered, our world birthed a lot of unhealthy things, and somewhat normalizing the ideas of self-harm and suicide certainly falls within that category. So regardless of if you're in a band, work in the industry, or just a fan, take some notes, learn from your mistakes or those that came before you, and pay it forward. It doesn't cost you anything to be a good person, and that goes for me too. All right, short dive this week. It's a holiday weekend. I just wanted to get back on schedule, but I was watching an episode of Criminal Minds a few weeks ago, and it reminded me of Hannah's story, and I asked my girlfriend, who was a, also a devout scene kid during that time, if she remembered her or the protest or any of the media backlash against emo. She said she had never heard of any of that before, and nobody talks about it nowadays, which is wild because the fact that emo was getting so much mainstream media attention was a testament to just how big it had become. So I figured it was worth it to shine a quick light on it. All right, so on to our radio rundown before we wrap up. MGK and Black Bear are now entering their free fall from the chart. My Ex's Best Friend is down nearly 6% in plays on top 40 and has dropped from number 5 to number 8. Again, hell of a run, and I'm stoked to see what they can blow up next, which might be over at Alternative Radio, where his other song, Love Race, with Kellen Quinn, is at number 19. Pretty much breaks even in plays this week, but I'm hoping this builds some real momentum over the next few, but we'll see. 21 Pilots Shy Away is still number one on alternative radio, but nowhere to be seen on top 40, which is where they need to be. And their new album, Scaled and Icy, is about to drop more than 50% in first week sales from Trench, which did 175,000 total units. Right now, Scaled is forecasted to drop all the way to 81,000 total. I mean, say what you will about sales, and people will definitely still pack out to go see them live, but the only people getting excited about a new 20 one pilots album is the click and the click doesn't have the power it used to that's just a fact 
the streams are lower, the radio plays are lower, and therefore the totals are going to be lower. It's a bummer because this band could have continued their reign and gotten even larger if it wasn't for Trench. That album just screwed everything for them. Anyways, All Time Lows Once in a Lifetime makes another big jump from 10 to 6 on alternative radio, up 4.5% in plays. They also had a late night performance this week for the song, so things are still looking up for it. They just gotta keep those spins going up. The Main continue their exciting slow burn up the alt radio chart, jumping from 25 to 22, up over 14% in spins. I still got really high hopes for this song. Also, someone I've been failing to mention on alternative radio that I see more and more people talking about in the scene, Kenny Hoopla. He's dropped two songs with Travis Barker this year, and they're both pretty solid pop-punk bangers. The first one, Estella, broke the top 10 at alt radio, but has begun its fall off, but his latest track, Hollywood Sucks, just screamed from 71 to 40 this week, so we'll see if it can keep that kind of energy and get him a top 5 track. Over at Rock Radio, we have Bring Me the Horizon at number 4, up 1.1% in plays, and A Day to Remember right behind them still at number 5, up 8% in plays. I mean, this is two of the biggest bands in the scene. They're about to duke it out for a number 1 on Rock Radio. We'll see who wins, or hell, even if they could both get up there. Black Veil Brides finally make a notable move forward, jumping from 17 to 14, up over 7% in plays. I mean, that might finally be getting some actual momentum behind it. Beartooth's The Past is Dead is still sitting at number 23, and it's down over 6% in plays, so that is definitely not a great sign, but still not enough to say the song is done. It's still early, so we'll see where it's at next episode, and that'll give us a more definitive read on where it's headed. And finally, Bad Omens are back inside the top 30 with another song, Never Know, at 29, which is up over 6% in plays, so that's dope for them. I'm excited to see where that one goes. All right, that does it for the show this week. Like I said, quick one for the holiday weekend and for me to get back on schedule. Thank you so much for listening. If you have any requests for deep dives, email me at notetoseen at gmail.com. You can subscribe to the show wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow Note to Scene on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Join the official Note to Scene group on Facebook. If you enjoy the show, please drop a review on iTunes. I'd appreciate it very much. Until next episode, stay safe, and I'll talk to you soon. Bye.